Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, along with co-host Andy Dolich, and our guest today and David Abruton from Bruin Sports Capital. Really excited to have David on to talk about his journey uh, to through the industry and, and then also to where he is right now. Um, David, there, there's been a lot of things you've accomplished. Uh, we'll mention the 40 under 40 uh, not too long ago, we'll say, and uh, we can definitely touch on that. But Andy, why don't you kick it off? Well, yeah, I'm still trying to work out a deal with uh, Abe Madker to be one over 100. I've missed the 30 under 30, the 40 under 40, and, you know, the sports. So who knows? But uh, I I first met David, I believe, when I was doing uh, work with IMG College. Um, And it was before all of the different mergers and acquisitions took place as the business of college sports was growing. But we've sort of known each other even before that. As the world of sports was growing up, I mean, I I think about having been around for a while with some sort of institutional knowledge. And David, let's put COVID aside for a second. Over your time in sports, what what have you seen as sort of the biggest changes, the aha moments that you look back on and now maybe look forward to in the world of sports business? Yeah, first off, it's great to be here with both of you. And, and um, I think it's a great question, Andy. And, and uh, to me, I, I think it, the answer is encapsulated in just the evolution of um, the science, I'll call it, of sports marketing. I mean, when I started back in, in you know, 1991, interning for the Washington Capitals and the bullpen selling tickets or trying to help the guys sell tickets, um, it, it really was an industry about you know ticket sales and signage, um, and I think the decision making was made at a very different level um, than it is today. And you know when I look at the trajectory of my own career path from the Capitals to the Sports Business Daily to the NHL, then to IMG, and 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 now to what I'm doing at Bruin, uh, I think the sophistication, uh, I think the, the quality of um, expertise in the discipline of marketing, communications, um, business development, um, uh, uh, analyzing um, return on investment and and the things that have really made the sophistication of the industry um, move forward, uh, you know, almost in dog years at times. Uh, To me, that's been the biggest change. And and, um, it was a very different uh, business back when I started than it is today. Um, and I think that's a reflection of not only the ability of sports and entertainment broadly defined um, to reach audiences at scale, but also to deliver real value for companies that go well beyond butts and seats and, um, you know, signage and background. Ironically enough, in the COVID world, everyone's back to how big is my sign and can I see it? Um, but that's a, that's a byproduct of the environment we're currently living in. But to me, the biggest, the biggest change is is the science behind the investment spending and the decision-making that goes on on a day-to-day basis. And I, I would just, it, it happens to be one of my favorite parts of sports because it's all networking, who you know, groups, individuals that you respect, individuals that you'll never talk to again in life because you don't. But I was looking <laughs> as Your old media guy. Washington Capitals, it's just like, you know what? As much as things change, 
you know, they stay the same. You weren't even born in 1978 or whatever. <laughs> uh, but it, you mentioned, you know, selling. And even though we're in a level of sophistication now greater than at any time, and we'll see even more so with all the digital devices that we have, if you don't sell your product, you don't have the multi-billion dollar business that we're in. And one of the greatest gaps in the world today is that fans aren't at events in the way that they were before. And that is a kick in the gut the industry yeah no question and and i, I think andy I, i've always often told the story that uh, i remember you passing along at, at one of the earliest national sports forums because people as i've talked to students and and others that want to get in the business um and 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 passed along insights and wisdom um one of the questions that you always get asked is how do i get into sports marketing and and i sort of paraphrase it by saying there's no such thing as sports marketing um it's all about sales and you have to be able to sell a product to somebody, whatever that may be, a ticket, it could be a bottle of Coke, it could be a bottle of Gatorade, a baseball hat. The, the, the platform of sports is used to sell something. And if you want to be successful, um, you've got to learn how to sell. And, and, and I also remember something else you passed along to some bright-eyed student that asked a question about how to be successful in selling. I believe you, you told them you know, don't go work for the New York Yankees. They know how to sell tickets. Um, you know, go work at, for at the time at the Kansas City Royals who had, you know, a thousand or 2000 people. Or the, the Washington market. Capitals. Or the Washington Capitals. Uh, exactly. Right. You know, they, they go help somebody sell tickets in a place that needs it. And, and that's where you're going to yeah. learn the art of selling. And if you learn the art of selling, you can apply that across any discipline. Um, and I think that's a, a valuable lesson for young people that are looking to uh, establish and get careers in, in the industry today. It's you really need to learn the art of selling um, because it's it's what makes and, and drives the ecosystem. And David, the, the art of selling isn't just the product, as Andy mentioned, it's also selling yourself. You know, we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast, but can you maybe talk a little bit about how you sold yourself throughout your career to, to make the jumps and leaps that you have? Well, I think there's a couple of key key things that you know any successful person has to do first and foremost you have to be good at your job and and in sports marketing my first job was was selling tickets um you know and i was in a bullpen with a whole bunch of people and you know you figure out pretty quickly which people can sell and which people can't and if you can't sell you don't necessarily hang around too long so um you, you need to learn the, the the bare knuckles uh aspects of selling um, i also think you need to have a great work ethic um, I, I think you need to be um, self-motivated to further educate yourself on what it takes to excel and be good at your job. I think a lot of times people don't realize that when you graduate from college or graduate school, if you've gone that point, um, your learning comes from you know, pushing yourself. Um, and you learn from your peer group, you learn from the people you work for, and then you learn from the knowledge you seek out on your own. And I, I think it's very important to, to, to push yourself to acquire the knowledge necessary to not only do your job and, and exceed at it, but also with an eye towards um, similar to a pool player who's always, you know, guessing one or two shots ahead. You need to try and think that way from a career standpoint as well. And if you do, um, it potentially can help set you up for success. And, and I also think lastly, um, something that's been lost on, and I hate saying this because I, I, I am still feel like a young guy, although suddenly I qualify for 50 over 50, um, I do think communication skills 
are essential. Uh, and in particular for this next generation of, of, of um, executives and, uh, and younger, younger people who've grown up in a digital world communicating 140 characters at a time or in short form via text messages, um, the ability to give a thoughtful presentation uh, and communicate with somebody, um, the ability to write a well thought out email, the ability to write a well thought out presentation, um, those are very important and critical skills. And so, you know, for me, it was about doing my job well. Um, it was about being a good communicator um, and, and building your own personal brand as, as someone that, you know, stands for success and, and has a work ethic and drive. Um, and I think if you do those things um, and you build relationships in an industry that's defined by relationships, um, you, uh, you put yourself in a position to, to take opportunities that, that are presented to you. And my career path is, is a byproduct of everything I just said, um, from a, a family relationship that helped me get my internship to somebody that recognized I perhaps had larger aspirations um, than to continue to work in a ticket office who connected me to um, Jeffrey Pollock, who had an idea for a sports business publication called the Sports Business Daily, um, where I went and worked for several years after the Capitals, um, which a relationship that Jeffrey had then led me to the National Hockey League. Um, and a relationship I met at the Sports Business Daily then led me to IMG. Um, and then my relationship I developed with George Pine while at IMG led us to, you know, become partners in Bruins. So um, all of those things I said, I've, I've tried to live in, in, in the sense of um, charting out my own career journey. You, you said something. What one key, I, I can interrupt because I'm more senior than you are. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, um, you know, when, uh, when David, and thank you for the positive comments, yes, I'd love to run to chaos and disaster, and I could do that with the Philadelphia 76ers at 1973 and the Washington Capitals, Aiden, whatever, but that ties. So it wasn't, it wasn't that terrible, but it's the size of the deal. Now you look at deals that you're doing for Bruins, which are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you think about it like, oh, I'd like to hire somebody to come in and do some $100 million deals, you'd never get there unless you were selling a season ticket that costs a few thousand dollars, right? It's, it's, I'm used to doing this. I'm used to the process. And whether it's four season tickets for whatever it was at that time that you were doing it, it's $100 million deals today. It, doesn't it take the same DNA? Yes, and the and the the elements of what made a good deal back then are still very much so um, foundational pieces of what makes a good deal um, for what we're looking at today and trying to back management teams and assess a business's growth potential. Um, you, you need to understand the fundamentals of of you know deal making um, in order to to chart what you believe is a growth opportunity. Um, you know, and I had a, a wonderful opportunity in the early days of, of, of my time at IMG to work with the likes of Mark McCormick um, and Peter Johnson and, and Bob Kane and, and, and Andy Pierce and some other legends in the industry um, where you learn um, different magnitudes of deal making but at its core the fundamentals are, are very much the same as, as you point out Andy and you need to have um, I think those experiences along the way in order to help you take you know, additional steps in your career. And, and another thing that I learned over the time um, when I was younger was um, 
as you point out, you know, it's disasters where, where, where you've had a lot of success, but you also want to look to be able to do things that you can point to that you were a part of. And as the industry evolved, it became, um, particularly in the building boom, uh, you know, there's a lot of people I know that worked for the Orioles when Camden Yards got built, right? And then they went and they worked for, you know, the Ravens when they came to town and their stadium got built, um, or they worked for, um, you know, a naming rights deal for the first time that was done. If you, if you look for big things and you don't have to necessarily be the guy that's driving the boat or the, or the gal that's driving the boat, but if you're part of a group of people that work on memorable projects, um, that's also something to seek out in the course of your career, because over the period of time that you work in the industry, you want to be able to point back and say, Hey, I was a part of something. Right. And we did something unique. Um, and for me, it was the sports business daily. It didn't exist. And it's still today, 26 um, years later, uh, exists. When I was at the NHL, I was part of a group of people that helped sell the first ever presenting sponsorship of All-Star Weekend. They'd never sold a presenting sponsorship of All-Star Weekend before. And so while I wasn't the person driving that process, I was on the team of people that helped get it done. So all along the way, you want to look for things like that, that you can point to that are success stories um, and, and, you know, respectfully have a, a part of those that will serve you well in, in, in the course of your career. You know, you mentioned those memorable projects and I go back to one of the, the things you said earlier about, you know, the pool, the pool, the pool thought of thought mindset, right? Like thinking one, two steps ahead. How do you seek out or, or try to understand what those things are going to be uh, from a memorable project standpoint, or is there a way to learn, you know, how those things are coming down the pipeline? I think you have to have vision, um, you know, and, and, and the ability to see broadly um, where opportunities may present themselves. And you don't always know it until you stumble upon it. Obviously, if um, like right now, the Seattle Kraken, right, are building, uh, a, a team of people to launch a franchise, right? That's obvious. If someone calls you and, you know, you've worked at a team for a long time and you've got the opportunity to go create something from the ground up, um, that's obviously easy to see, right? But if you're, you know, selling a major sponsorship or something that's never been done before, maybe, maybe that's a little, a little bit more gray. But I think when, when you see it, um, sometimes you'll recognize it and you want to lean into those opportunities. Um, but it's also helpful, I, I think, um, Rick Dudley, when I worked at the NHL, another one of the, the great people in the industry I had the good fortune to interact with, once described managing your career um, like a pyramid, right? Try and stay at the bottom of the pyramid as long as you can, because you can make decisions along the way that narrow what your career choices are. And so if you, you think about um, learning about different subjects and different experiences and you stay towards the bottom, it gives you the flexibility to pivot into different areas over the course of time. Um, and it's not bad necessarily if you decide, hey, I want to be in communications and my aspiration is to be, um, you know, the top PR guy for a team. You've got to make some career choices from your first job all the way to where you get there that take you down a much more narrower path. So um, and in, in each case, I think you'll see big opportunities um, when uh, when when you recognize what they are. Um, it's, it's not so hard. It's, it's easy, like I said, to identify, you know, things like the Kraken or a new franchise or a new building. Um, some of the other ones, you kind of stumble upon them sometimes, in which case you've made your own luck because you're in the right place at the right time in the right organization. And then it, it, it never changes. I mean, that construct, even though we can be much more advanced, analytics and metrics, right? It's a tidal wave that 
uh, is, is a major factor in sport and not just in player evaluation now in sales. But if you're one of the brightest people in analytics and metrics trying to get a job, the teams are not hiring 35 people to work in their analytics organization. They're just hiring a few. If you're in sales and marketing and promotion, they could be hiring 15 or 50 or 75 people to let them, as David said, beat the living crap out of each other to see who can end up standing at the end of a sales period. And I'm always going to want, I'm a fisherman, I'm going to want to fish where the fish are. Young, a lot of young careerists go, I want to be the general manager of a team in that city. Good. When somebody's had that job for 20 years in that position, eh, you're done. Right. Or I want, I want to go sell for that team, which has had declining attendance for 10 years. That's where I want to go because that's where you can get seen. And as David said, uh, as a Kraken is a perfect example, or people who have operational skills are always sort of in the background, but not anymore. Not that you deal with protocols now and bubbles and quarantines. Those individuals have, have moved out front in the business of sports and been so much more valuable than somebody that might have had another skill. And we're seeing it happen right in front of our eyes. Yeah, and that, look, I think the, the ability to, to get things done is, is very important. And Jake, back to what you, know, you asked about earlier, the first thing you have to do is execute and do your job well. And as, as Andy's pointing out, um, the people now who historically might have been in the background are now in the forefront because of the need to really um, you know, seamlessly execute because the risk of, of not doing so and the economic impact of that is significant as anything they've ever done, right? If the NBA and the NHL hadn't have pulled off um, the bubbles as successfully as they did, the, the, the economic backwash in their system um, would, would have been significant. And so the, the risk there was, was obviously substantial and it's a credit to the parties involved in all of that, including the players associations that they've been able to pull this off. Um, and now I think you'll see a pivot um, to climbing a much higher mountain, which in, in the case of both the NBA and the NHL, trying to determine when and how they're going to come back and how they're going to replace the, 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 the economics that came out of the system, uh, it's going to be an, an even more impressive feat because um, the rules are different across the country. And in the case of hockey and in the limited sense basketball, you even have cross-border issues. So um, that, that operational know-how and the ability to get your job done and do it well um, is, is a skill set that, again, I think is, is applicable across anything that you may do across the course of your career. And you mentioned the pyramid aspect of things, right? Getting experiences in different layers of the business. Well, if you're on the operations front line and you need to understand how something has to be positioned or, or set up in order for the revenue aspect to you know, happen, whether it's a sponsorship, whether it's uh, some sort of media you know, platform, they also have to understand that part and vice versa, right? If you're the salesperson, you got to understand how the operations person can go and set something up or what their limitations are in some sense. Um, how do you go about learning? You know, if you haven't had those experiences and you're in that operations role, how do you go about learning about the sponsorship or the revenue side? Well, look, I think that's a byproduct of your day-to-day -day interaction, uh, you know, back to the point I was making earlier about communicating and, and, and putting yourself in a position to, 
understand more than just what you do, right? I'll, I'll use the, the NHL example, right? You know, Steve Mayer, um, who's their executive creative director, among other hats that he wears, um, you know, if he didn't have an innate understanding of the business issues on the marketing and sponsor side, um, it, it's very difficult to, to plan and pull off what they did. And they, in the NHL's case, they made a conscious decision to, uh, in the tarping of the seats, not put branding on those seats because um, they had other ways they could deliver value to their partners, namely in ice logos and the dasher boards. And so um, understanding that balance with the, the network broadcasters, um, the local sponsors, and then the national sponsors of the league, that's a byproduct of Steve doing his job day in and day out to understand what his peer group uh, is dealing with in the day-to-day -day operations of their own areas of the business. And, you know, that's the importance of communicating. If, if, if in that example, Steve were out on an island and, and didn't understand those dynamics, there's no way he would have been as successful as he was, right? And that's, you know, again, it's a lesson in, in you know, building relationships, communication, and understanding. And even at, you know, at, at, even at this point in my career, one of the ways you learn is you ask questions, right? You have to ask questions along the way. Nobody knows everything. And you're always constantly learning. I think that's one of the great things about this industry um, is um, it, it's a relationship business and, and you can ask any question. Don't be afraid to ask the question. A lot of people are too afraid to ask the question. I would say always stay away from the people who tell you they know everything. Because in sports and entertainment, media business, we do have people that know everything. That's not where you want to go. And, and when David was talking about, you know, one of my favorite books by one of the great thinkers in terms of Mark McCormick, people would go like 1984, that book is 1984. How could that be relevant today? This book is as relevant right this moment and in the next two or three decades as it's ever gonna be because it's the basic. So institutional awareness gives you this ability to to have those parts of your personality that David so well discussed. And don't think that just because you're here and now, you know more than anybody else. Cardboard cutouts existed decades ago uh, as backgrounds for movies and everything else. So don't you know fall in love with yourself because you think you've revolutionized the world. Isn't the, isn't the cardboard cutout what they call the face hole? Didn't you, didn't you go to the face hole and you put your face, you know, they took out the face? Uh, yeah, but if you look at uh, the bad remake of Angels in the Outfield at the Oakland Coliseum, I mean, many movies just have cardboard cutouts in the background before they went to, you know. CGI. Yeah, pre-CGI, that was, that, that was what they did. So if you spend a little bit of time, right, David, I think you'd recommend this business. I do. My, my, I have a 22-year-old daughter that just graduated from Michigan, and my son is at Syracuse in the Falk Sports Management Program, and uh, both that book was required reading for both of them. It, yeah. is, it is as relevant today as it ever was, and the fundamentals of that, and it's what drove the career. Honestly, if you look at to, to the history of IMG, um, it, it's part of the magic of the company that Mark built is that he empowered people. Um, to go pursue new areas of business. And he instilled in the DNA of IMG, um, the intellectual curiosity and, and, the, and, the, and the collaboration amongst a global company of people um, to build an agency and, an, and, a, and a business 
um, that previously hadn't been as global as it was. And that's part of the magic of what made IMG what it was, was um, that innate trust in, in qualified people to go do the right thing and work amongst themselves to always do what was best first for your clients. And, and, and if it was good for the clients, invariably it ended up being good for the company. So as we cruise to the end of this session, again, we really appreciate it. Um, you mentioned Mark's global view that he had it before many had it in sport. From an optimistic standpoint, from where you sit with the Bruins team and look at the incredible growth of global sport, what are some of the positives that you'd leave the listeners to as you're looking at the next year or so? Well, look, I, I think sport has has proven time and time again to be a unifier of people, societies, and cultures. Um, and at, at its highest level, I, I still think that's true today. And, and with the advent of um, consumption of sport in the digital environment, um, it, it's been a it's been a great, um, I think, relief to people all around the world that sport has come back in, in different ways. And certainly over the next several months, I think the period of disruption will still be there. But I, I think the, the, the opportunities in sport from a media technology services standpoint, from um, an event experience standpoint, all, all of those things will, will, will find um, new lives as, as we you know, progress past um, the next four or five or six months, however long it takes the science to catch up with society. Um, and sports will be at the epicenter of, um, of the comeback. And, you know, you, you might, um, while it may be a, a little, you know, Pollyanna-ish, I guess, the Olympic Games next summer have an opportunity to be a unifying event for the world, where over that 17-day period, um, I, I think society and culture would like nothing more than to sit back and cheer uh, Olympians on as they, you know, pursue their dreams of, of winning medals, whether it's bronze, silver, or gold, or whether it's just participating. And the magic of that, um, I, I think still remains and the magic of sport still remains. And, and despite the, the negative energy around, you know, the ratings of sport being down, um, what's lost in that is that while the ratings of sport being are down, those sporting events are winning the broadcast night, um, in their respective positions. So, um, while what that tells you is that less people are watching, but the most people are watching sports who are watching something. So I think the future is very bright. Um, and I think there'll be a flight to quality like there always is. Um, but uh, I, I think the, the, the best days for sport are certainly ahead. Well, we appreciate your adding to the flight of quality uh, with, with this session. I'll leave it to Jake to to say goodbye. Uh, but again, we appreciate it, David. You stay safe and sane in the new different. Thank you. David, well, one, one, one last question is, as we uh, leave something for the listeners, if you were to ask someone uh, a question or, or advice on how to better communicate, you mentioned the communication aspect of things earlier in the episode, what would be the question you'd ask someone? Um, I think the question I would ask is, there's a funny commercial I saw that, that uh, I think it's a car commercial where um, a, a friend texts another friend and, you know, the guy gets in his car and drives to his door and I, I forget what he says, but his friend says to him, are you answering my text in person? Um, and, and he says, <laughs> yeah, I am. And he says, sure, come on in. I think my question would be, we can, can we, can we do more in person or more, um, 
talking via phone than relying on the text message or the email communication. I, I think there's a, um, th there should be a return to a more regular um, and consistent uh, type of communication than just over digital and text. And, you know, that commercial made me laugh because I think everyone would like to get in their car and go say hello to a friend that maybe they've only been texting for the last few months. So uh, my, my question would be, you know, can we do less electronic and more in person? Oh, that's great. David, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, certainly look forward to having you on in the future. Thank you. Thanks, David.